0: Hi guys, I'm here at the London School of Economics as today I spoke to Heather Browning. Heather is a philosopher and she thinks about animal welfare and in the past she was also a zookeeper in Australia so we had a great chat about these kind of two distinct but somewhat related phases of her life. If you enjoyed this episode please hit subscribe and share it around and thanks for watching. Heather, so you were born in Canberra in Australia. First thing I wanted to ask was, um, from a young age, were you an animal lover from an, from an early age?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of my earliest memories from being three or four years old was going on a family trip to one of the zoos that's sort of an original part of New South Wales, a few hours away from where we live, and taking photos of all the animals. I was a little kid who was just learning how to use a camera. and really liked trying to take all these terrible photos, and in particular the hippos. I was absolutely in love with hippos and so going to this zoo and seeing a pile of them sleeping it really far away just this pile of gray shapes remember absolutely loving that and so i wanted to be a zookeeper since i was very very small Um, my mum dug out for me a few years ago this book that i'd written in one of those things you do when you're a kindergartner that's like you know my name is heather when i grow up i want to (laughs) be and i'd written in it a zookeeper Mm which was, yeah, what I ended up with. What doing. were
0: your parents like? Were they big animal lovers? Did they have many pets or anything like No, this?
1: they were moderate animal lovers, I guess, but yeah, n- nothing in particular. We didn't have any pets until I was probably 10 or 11 years old. We got a budgerigar, which I looked after and trained very intently. Um, and yeah, then we got our first dog when I was about 13 years old. I had a lot of younger sisters too, so I think having the small kids in the house put off the idea of having pets until at least they were a little bit bigger. But when we did have pets, I think I was always the person in the house who paid the most attention, who looked after them. I did the dog training, the dog walking, you know, she'd sleep on my bed at night, all of that.
0: Do you remember what it was about animals that you, you loved so much when you were a child?
1: I can't even really say. it was just I mean I guess every kid has something that they really connect to and for me that was it you know when I was writing little stories they'd always be things with animals in them the books I liked the soft toys I liked were all animal ones the little zoo figurines were the ones I liked playing with the most and so yeah it was just the thing that really sparked my interest and I really loved I mean I didn't spend a lot of time like I said we didn't have pets so I didn't spend a lot of time with animals up close when I was younger and I was a little bit intimidated sometimes when I did you know I would love to go and pat horses or dogs but they also made me very nervous because I hadn't spent much time with them.
0: And so you were a zookeeper, Um, that was was your aim and then you actually became a zookeeper and you were also an animal welfare officer for a little bit, so when did you get into either of these roles and how did you get into them and what was the story with that?
1: Yeah so I guess um, as I was going sort of through the last parts of high school I'd moved away from thinking about this animal side of things very much, I was studying Science. I was going to go to university. I was thinking of studying biochemistry or something like that. And in my first year of undergraduate, my mom came to me one day and she had this ad from the newspaper that was from our local zoo in Canberra, and it was looking for volunteers. And so, you know, she said, "Oh, this might be something you're interested in." And I thought that actually sounds like a lot of fun. So I turned up to this, I guess you know, this training night where they had a few hundred people all sitting there wanting to be volunteers at the zoo, and I got selected and couple of weeks later so yeah showed up in my new boots and my jeans and everything all ready to go for work and yeah from the first moment I just absolutely loved it. Um, One of the first things I had to do was actually cut up the fish for the penguins to feed and I'm a vegetarian I'd never touched a fish before in my life and even something that was you know fairly unpleasant like that was still just something I really enjoyed doing because I guess the purpose for it and so you know it wasn't just the time spent with the animals but something about all the work that you do it's you know it's physical it's practical you spend a lot of time outdoors there's always kind of a goal to everything you're doing and something about that really clicked with me as well so I you know I absolutely loved spending the time with the animals but I also just really liked spending the days that I did there and so I ended up doing more days volunteering as I was um, completing my degree I changed the direction of my university study then to study zoology because the sort of animal connection came back and I became really certain that I wanted to do something with that. And when I graduated from university, I got um, some casual work there at the zoo as an actual paid zookeeper, which I was very excited and very proud of because all of a sudden, you know, upgraded from being a volunteer to being one of the people who's really in charge of the animals and, you know, getting to decide how I spend my time and figuring out, you know, what you need to do each day, being responsible for their sort of health and well-being as it goes. It's a very, very different perspective from being the volunteer. I guess you just pretty much follow orders. But again, you get to spend that extra time with the animals too. So being a keeper really allowed me to make those extra connections with the animals that I loved. And so I was there for a few years and then ended up moving on to some other zoos to get more permanent and full-time work
0: there. That's very cool. So, I mean, what exactly does your role as a zookeeper consist of? Like, what do you get up to day-to-day and, uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. So many things. So, I mean, yeah, animal husbandry encompasses just, you know, every single thing that an animal needs to be happy and healthy. And so for anyone who's kept a pet, I think the basics of it are fairly familiar. You know, you feed them, you clean up after them, you make sure they have a nice environment. But there's so many little things. So you you tend to spend the beginning of your day doing a bit of a circle around all your different animals, basically making sure you just lay eyes on every single one, have a look at them, make sure that they're alive and well and still where they're supposed to be. And and the more you get to know the animals, the easier that becomes in that you can take a very, very quick look at an animal you know well and be able to see whether or not it's doing okay. So being able to detect a sick animal or one that seems unhappy in some way becomes easier, I think. The better you know them, you develop an instinct for that. And usually when you're doing that, you give them all a morning feed as well. And then, yeah, basically a lot of the day is spent cleaning. So... That's, you know, raking and scrubbing and all kinds of bits and pieces, are preparing their foods for their afternoon feeds for the next morning's food. That tends to be prepared the day before, so it's ready to go. And then I guess what I think of as the fun parts of the job, the things are a little bit more flexible. So, you know, you've got the essential feeds and cleans every day but then there's the animal training. So you can do all kinds of different training, either conditioning the animals just to be more comfortable with your presence or training them for something specific, like entering a box for transport or presenting body parts for certain sort of, you know, medical management. Uh, There's enrichment, which I think was my absolute favorite part of it, which is just being as creative as you want to be to try and do things that are interesting for the animals, give them something that's different from what they usually have. And so this can include, you know, smells, basically activities, so your cardboard boxes full of treats that are you know, hidden in straw, uh, scattering things or hiding around your enclosure for them to find sort of odd toys or novel objects they haven't experienced before, they can sniff and roll around. And it depends on the species as to what you use, but being able to walk around and kind of spot things throughout the day that you think your animals will like, you know, seeing a tree that's starting to flower and going, okay, those flowers are edible, and the birds would really like them. Or a log that's come out of an enclosure that's like a nice big round log that you think, yeah, a wombat would really like that and you're grabbing these things and using them as you go. I think it's a really sort of fun part of the job because it's, yeah, it is this kind of creative problem solving. And then you get to see when you give it to the animals, you know, which things they respond to, which they don't, which things last over time and which things have a very short-term effect. So I think those are some of the really enjoyable parts of it. And, you know, coming from this idea of someone who is quite concerned with the idea of animal welfare, then the enrichment's a big part of that because it's a big part of what makes up their psychological welfare instead mm-hmm. of just the physical health parts.
0: Were there any like novel interactions you came up with when you, you know, you're talking about the enrichment stuff that you tried with the animals that, um, that were interesting?
1: I mean, some things that were interesting was just using food items that an animal wouldn't usually encounter. So, you know, something like for a Tasmanian devil, which is usually a scavenger animal that eats mostly meat, giving it something like an orange and seeing what it would do with that. And typically they wouldn't eat it, they would just kind of, you know, sniff it or break it up, but not actually get into it. Another thing that was always pretty successful was taking the scent from one animal and putting it into another animal's enclosure. So that could be something as simple as getting a piece of cloth and you know brushing it on an animal that will let you touch it like a dingo and then giving that to some other animal so they can see the scent of that um, or just you know getting a cardboard box and putting a smell on the side of that and throwing it in for a predator animal, the scent of a prey animal or the scent of meat or something like that. And I think particularly thinking about these sorts of different Um, different perceptual experiences that animals might have that we don't have so things like smells um, That they yeah, you know Most animals have a much better sense of smell that we do and their environment is made up of smells in a way that ours is not for us And so changing the scent environment using even just you know, like herbs or essential oils or something Can be something animals really respond to well as well
0: Was there anything particularly difficult about the job as a zookeeper? That was a kind of challenging?
1: Um, I mean Physically, it's just very challenging. I'm not an early morning person and it is a job that requires early mornings because you've got to get in there with the animals. You've got to have a lot of the work done before the zoo opens to the public in the morning. So I always struggled with that. And Canberra in particular has very, very cold mornings in winter. Um, So, you know, you'd get up in the morning, I'd have to chip all the ice off my car. Uh, Most of the hoses would be frozen when you get to work. And so... That was definitely unpleasant, working on very hot days, very rainy days, uh, working very, very long, physically demanding days. Uh, The other thing I think is dealing with animals that are sick or when they die uh, is just, that's I guess the emotionally difficult part of the job is that you have these animals that you love, uh, sometimes things go wrong with them, and you can work very hard to try and save them to try and get them better, and it doesn't always work out, and I think, yeah euthanasia of animals in particular can be one of the really hardest parts not that we perform that ourselves obviously the vets do but we're usually around for it because you want to have the animals have sort of a familiar face and the last parts of their lives but I think for any animal yeah you grieve when you lose them like that and that can be very difficult for some people I think you know almost prohibitively difficult but there's a sort of I guess there's a central line, so you see some people who probably invest so much that it really, really damages them. And some people who just, for that reason, sort of step away and almost just seem to go really cavalierly, like they don't care at all. And that felt to me a little bit disrespectful, perhaps. And I think finding a way to, to care enough to grieve your animals, but be also be able to move on and just you know, appreciate what you have to do next is still, I guess, a difficult skill, but one that's really important if you want to do the job well. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there particular um, animals that you still remember, you know, dying now that you know you remember being really upset about, like particular animals that you look after?
1: Yeah, so one of the the hardest ones, perhaps for me, was this beautiful wombat we had at National Zoo Aquarium in Canberra. Her name was Winnie, and she was there the entire time I worked there. So between when I started as a volunteer and when I returned there years later, I was at that zoo for over twenty years, um, and. She's one of the few animals that was there when I started volunteering. She was a relatively young wombat then. We'd go out every day and cut fresh grass and give it to her. She was a kind of feisty animal that would chase you and you'd have to make sure she didn't catch you and bite you, but sometimes she really loved to scratch. And then, you know, towards the end of her life, she was the oldest wombat in the world at that point. So she was this very, very old girl, somewhere, you know, early thirties, and just for an animal that all started going downhill and the decision had to be made to euthanize her. and I think. I think for on there that was really hard because when you've just got that amount of time that you've spent with an animal um yeah losing them is just absolutely devastating even when you know that you know they're an older animal and it's not sort of tragically out of their time or anything like that but it's still very sad and so we ended up putting in a memorial garden where her enclosure used to be rather than putting another animal there so we kept burrows and we sort of put in some chairs for people to sit and started up a foundation as well that's called winnie's foundation that raises money that have been her honor to treat wild wombats for mange which is one of the biggest problems affecting wild wombats in australia at the moment and so yeah sort of just fundraising for that to be able to assist with the interventions to protect i guess the wild cousins which is one of the roles that we see for animals in zoos. really is that you know people make connections to this animal and through those connections they take actions to protect the wild relatives of them as well.
0: And so you were also an animal welfare officer, is that is that right? So what did you get up to? Yeah, so
1: the animal welfare officer is something that I started, um, I guess, you know, many years after all of that. So I was a zookeeper for a long time. And this came up because, I guess, animal welfare is becoming more and more of a focus within sort of, you know, the modern zoological mindset and the Australasian Zoo and Aquarium Association started doing welfare audits and so for membership within that organization now uh, the member zoos have to pass a welfare audit and so because of that our zoo decided to appoint a welfare officer to oversee that process and to just in general make sure that the collection welfare was going well and because I was doing work at the time doing my PhD in animal welfare and because I was very keen on it um yeah I was offered that role and it was yeah it was something that I really really enjoyed doing because it allowed us to take this new perspective going and assessing all the different enclosures and our husbandry routines and our diets and starting to think of them from the point of view of not just you know how well does this work but you know how could it be improved from the point of view of the welfare of the animal you know what sort of positive and negative feelings are the animals experiencing that we're able to enhance or um to try and remove And so we'd do these welfare audits. Um, So in the beginning, we just did the ones that were required for our accreditation. But then we kept going and just started moving around to try and audit every animal in the collection just so we could get a sense of where changes were needed. And each audit would then come with recommendations for changes to their enclosures or husbandry. And it was this thing that you'd look at all the different sort of aspects of the welfare of the animal. So it's based on the five domains model, which is a, a model used for welfare assessment that comes out of a... A group of welfare researchers in New Zealand, sort of led by David Meller. And the five domains is this idea that you've got these five domains that affect welfare, and four of them are sort of, I guess, not four, well, three of them are physical domains, one's a behavioural domain, and then these all feed into the mental state domain. And the idea is that the domain of the mental state, the feelings of the animal, that's where welfare really sits, and these other four are the conditions that change what happens. And so the way that is then, you think about these other domains, which are nutrition, their health, the environment and the behavior of the animal. And you think about all the positives and negatives in each of those and how they affect mental states. So when you're thinking about nutrition, you're not just thinking about, does this animal have a balanced diet? But you think, does it have enough food so that it avoids feelings of hunger? Because one problem with a lot of zoo diets for a while is that people got very good at figuring out the exact nutritional needs of animals and started producing pelleted diets. And those were fed out. I mean, the animal had a completely nutritionally balanced diet, but often it was far less volume that the animal might be used to eating. You have animals that just always feel a little bit hungry, which could be very unpleasant for them. So, you know, how can we make their diet such that they feel full? How can we make sure we present their diet so they get the joys of foraging, the joys of the variety of different textures, you know, make sure that they get favourite foods? And so it's just, yeah, starting to think about everything from the point of view of their mental states, um, you know, the environment, what's there, What's the soundscape of their environment like? What's the sensecape of their environment like? Are there things that might be bothering them that we can't really hear or see or smell that might be problems for these animals? And you know, this requires a lot of investigation into the species-specific biology, figuring out you know, what do these animals, what is their normal natural lifestyle like? What are the things they are likely to want? And yeah, also thinking about then, how much of that do we provide for them? What's their temperature range? And behavioral opportunities is a huge part of this. Then, you know, what are the natural behaviors they would perform? that we are giving them, you know, perhaps insufficient opportunity to perform. How could we change their enclosures so that there's more opportunity for that, more opportunity for exploration. And so, yeah, basically most of my job just involved moving around all the different exhibits, talking with the different keepers. Um, Obviously I hadn't been a keeper of all the different animals, so I wasn't familiar with all of them, but just starting to get this sense of what was going on with all of them. And then writing these lists of improvements, you know, how can we add something to their diet or change their routine Add some training add some keeper interaction Try and improve their lives, and so something that yeah, I hope as well. I think change the mindset of the keepers in their day to day routines to start thinking about how they can do things to help as well.
0: Why do you think the the psychological kind of component of of well being was is ignored and was ignored? You know, as opposed to like kind of you know, how their their physical health and stuff, because it seems like a, probably the most important. Like you say, so yeah, yeah I,
1: like, I think. Yeah, I mean, it seems the most important in very large part, you know, for ethical reasons that we think, you know, our own sufferings and pleasures are what really matter to us. I think the reason that this has been kind of ignored is largely a historical issue that, you know, animal husbandry and animal welfare science has come out of a lot of um, veterinary work and come out of agricultural techniques, and they just weren't thinking as much about the psychological as they were the physical. And I guess because, you know, in the beginnings, keeping animals, the physical stuff was the stuff that was. A, a problem, you know, animals were dying very young, they were getting diseases, they weren't eating well. And so sorting out their nutrition, sorting out, you know, making sure their enclosures didn't have, you know, infectious agents in them, these sorts of things were really crucial to begin with. Um, and I think when that's the case, you know, when physical health isn't good, thinking about psychological health seems to become sort of an extra on top of that. But particularly I think with zoos more than any other sort of animal husbandry system, The physical stuff's pretty much nailed down. For most of our animals, we've got a pretty good idea of how to keep them well. We know, you know, they've got good diets, they've got healthy lives, they've got good veterinary intervention. And for the most part, they shouldn't be having any physical health problems or nutritional problems. And so there, you know, the thing that we're really trying to think about now is their psychological well-being, their behavioral repertoires, in a way that, say, something like an agricultural system may not have the chance to focus on because they've still got
0: all these other issues. So from doing both of these jobs, I mean, you had like real hands-on experience with animals. What do you think it taught you about the lives of animals that you think you wouldn't have got? You know, maybe studying animals from a textbook and theoretically, what, what did you learn about the kind of life of, a, of an animal you think is, is, is like an important lesson?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the things is just understanding animals as individuals is a big one. I think, you know, when you read about them in your textbook or something like that, you can think of these animals as just species and these kind of really broad species generalizations but even within a species every single individual is a little bit different and you know it's really interesting even for animals you keep in large groups that perhaps don't seem to have a lot of personality from a distance say like a big group of wallabies you know the more you get to know them, the more you can sort of see oh yeah, you know this is the guy who always likes to lie under this tree in the morning and this is the guy who always comes over first for this food this one really likes these kinds of branches and so yeah thinking about welfare at an individual level as much as a species level is something that I think it really starts emphasizing and the other thing is just I guess to take the animal point of view one thing that concerns me in a lot of animal ethics is that it seems very human-centered and you know with the best of intentions I think people start projecting outwards from our own experience and the things we want to assuming that those are the things that should matter to animals and that you know animals should have rights to certain kinds of things because the absence of those things is distressing to ourselves And the worry there is that, yeah, we're not really thinking about then what the animals themselves want or need. And there might be things that are very important to animals that are being missed through these kinds of approaches because we don't really think about them. And there might be things that we're spending a lot of time focusing on that isn't actually that important. And animal freedom, I think, is one of these kinds of questions. You know, there's, I think, a very strong sort of position with animal ethics that looks at the rights of animals to their own liberty or to their own freedom. And this could be interpreted a lot of different ways, but in a very absolute sense, I don't think an animals necessarily harmed by being kept in captivity when the conditions are good enough, because you know, for humans, we conceptualise our own freedom, we value it in a very specific kind of way that I think animals value probably only instrumentally for their, you know, they enjoy the ability to choose their own behaviours, say they enjoy having some control over their environment, but being free in some larger sense, I think for many species of animals is not going to be something that's on their radar at all. And by focusing too much on the questions of freedom, yeah, we are then moving away from thinking about what is it from the point of view animal that it really cares about. It's
0: an interesting point you make about the, the actual like variation in, in, in kind of personality of all these different animals. And we do really just kind of group them together, don't we say these are chickens and these are that and they're this kind of one thing. But um, yeah, I mean, compared to human personality, do you think it, it, does it, it really varies? It really varies like quite a lot as much as maybe even individual humans do. Um, or is it, is it, is it slightly less still? Or, yeah, or, perhaps I mean, less so than not, humans do yeah. because
1: humans, I mean, one of the things I think that differs a lot between humans and most animals is that we have the capacity to value concepts. We can value sort of these abstract things in a way that animals perhaps cannot. And so the things they value are going to be, you know, things they have in their environment. It's going to be certain kinds of experiences, certain kinds of foods, interactions with others. And so they will differ to the degree to which they prefer all these different things. But perhaps just because the range of things that they have, the capacity to value is smaller. You're not going to see quite as many differences as you would between humans. But yeah, I think certainly you you do see these big differences. I mean, in personality types, or when you're thinking of animals that are more shy, or more outgoing, more curious, but just in terms of, you know, animals that care more about food versus care more about interacting with their keepers or interacting with other members of their species... And yeah, every single animal has different preferences in those regards. And you can definitely see it. I mean, I guess this is a danger of extrapolating results from welfare science to the whole species. It's still better than nothing, because I think in broad strokes, you're probably going to see that the things that are really important to most animals are going to be important to most members of their species. You know, some species really like to swim. and That's going to be true for almost all of them. But the degree to which they weigh that up against other things that they could have. It's going to be different. It's going to depend on their developmental history and just whatever their individual psychological forces are. And it's worth appreciating, again, especially somewhere like a zoo where you tend to manage relatively small groups of animals where I think it is entirely possible to take into account each of their specific needs and not just think of them as a group of a single
0: species. Is there a favourite... I really didn't get it with the, with the, I was trying to avoid the risk of grouping them together was there a certain <laughs> kind of animal, was a particular animal that was your favourite to interact with them and treat if there was and why, why?
1: Yeah so I think there's two that were probably special favourites of mine, I mean yeah so many things that I loved but uh, one of them is dingoes uh, which you know, are Australian native dogs and they are just absolutely beautiful to interact with um, they're just very gentle animals, typically, you are know, very focused towards their keeper, but animals that develop a relationship over time. So I know I've heard some people say they didn't like the dingoes so much because they felt like, oh, they just like everybody, but not in the same way. So, you know, it was very clear to me spending more and more time with animals and dingoes that the way they would respond to me became very different the more they got to know me and you know to the degree now that a few years later I've recently just gone back and visited and visited some of the dingos I used to work with and you know they remember me and they respond to me and it's really lovely to see they're genuinely excited to see you they're very much I guess like a dog in that way and even though you know we'd always keep them in social groups usually in pairs they're still very excited to see their keepers and we could take them out on walks every day because they are sort of a small relatively well behaved animals so they could come out on a leash and explore the zoo which they loved So they were a lot of fun to work with for that reason. The other one I really loved was orangutans. So when I worked at Auckland Zoo in New Zealand, I worked with orangutans there, and they just blew my mind. I didn't come into the job with any particular excitement for orangutans when they told me I was gonna train on them. I was like, okay, whatever. Um, But they were just amazing. So I think they're my favorite of the great apes because they have this sort of this slow way of thinking. They pay, very close attention to the environment i think chimpanzees you know they get a lot of fame for being very clever and you know they are extraordinarily so but they're very quick and excitable and orangutans take their time they're sort of lateral thinkers they think through a lot of possibilities in their environment and there's just something nice about their sort of slowness their quietness Their eyes that are always watching you and the way that they can interact with you and so yeah i really really enjoyed spending time with orangutans and A few years after I'd worked with them, I went to Indonesia to see them in the wild and that was just phenomenal too. They're such impressive animals, huge and kind of scary, but very impressive.
0: Okay, so I wanted to switch now to ask you about what you're up to now, which is philosophy. Um, So yeah, after a number of years of working, you kind of, you switched to philosophy and did an undergrad degree at the Australian National University. So what led to this kind of pretty big switch in, in direction?
1: Yeah. So it was at a time when I'd just moved cities and I was sort of, I guess at a little bit of a loss of what to do at the time. And so I thought, Oh, I'll go back and do another degree in something that was very different from what I'd studied before because it might be interesting and you know, it might give me some new ideas about life. And so, you know, I started doing this bachelor of arts in which you select, you know, a whole range of kind of humanities subjects. And one of the things I chose was philosophy, which I didn't really know even what it was at the time with this vague idea that you know it was this kind of inquiry based sort of discipline or whatever. But yeah, I wasn't really sure. And so I did these introductory philosophy courses and I thought they were pretty cool. I really liked the methods and the way that, you know, we sort of think about things and the way the methods of argumentation, I guess, and, you know, this conceptual clarity that comes in. And then partway through my degree, I studied a course in philosophy of biology. And that was when things really clicked, because all of a sudden I was like, here's all the things that I really liked when I studied biology, without, I guess, some of the things I didn't like so much. You know, one of the reasons I didn't pursue empirical biology when I did it as an undergraduate was because sort of the methods of it, I guess, you know, conducting experiments and analysing data and, you know, doing these statistical analyses to get results were not the things that were particularly my favourite part of the discipline. And when I sat in philosophy of biology, it was something like, oh, here we get to talk about all the concepts and, you know, the results that come out of science and the conclusions that are drawn and what this all means in you know, this kind of big picture way without getting, I guess, bogged down in all of that, which just, yeah you know, not that I think it's not really good and important work. It just wasn't something that called to me particularly. And so philosophy of biology yeah allowed me to do all the interesting parts of biology, the parts that were interesting to me. without sort of being able to avoid the more mathematical the statistical parts of it and so that was something i absolutely loved and the more i did of that um, i was also still working part-time in the zoo the more i started i guess linking these things together and thinking about you know asking questions about things that i was doing at the zoo or things that i was thinking about at the zoo and how a philosophical approach could perhaps answer some of these questions and so, in particular, the first thing I became really interested in was this question of natural behavior of animals. And so, when we do um, encounters with animals, one of the things we do at the zoo is members of the public come in and you know they meet different animals and we tell them about them. Sometimes they get to pat them or feed them. And the cheetahs were a very popular one. People would come in and meet our cheetahs. And one of the most common questions we got was, "Do you let them run?" Because you know cheetahs are very famous for running very fast. And so we had this kind of, you know, standard response, and we're like, well, oh, cheetahs don't actually like to run, you know, in the wild. They run only each day for about 30 to 60 seconds um, to take down a prey animal. They go at top speed. And then after that, they can't run anymore because they essentially push themselves into muscle meltdown. They have to go and lie down for 20 minutes. They can't do anything. And so it's not a particularly pleasant experience for them in, in captivity when they can avoid it. It's not something that they would choose to do. And I guess that got me thinking then about how we actually know any of this. and so. You know, how is it that we know what an animal likes or doesn't like or wants or doesn't want? And from there, you know, I started wanting to go and Uh investigate a bit more about this. And in particular, this idea of the natural behaviours that, you know, a lot of people very strongly believe Uh that it's important that an animal gets to perform all of its natural behaviours. And I started to think that that probably just wasn't true, that some behaviours are performed in the wild because they're necessary, not because they're enjoyable. And so, you know, maybe the case that in captivity where those behaviours are no longer required that the animal has no reason to want to do them and won't actually get any benefit out of doing them. But there are going to be some behaviours for which that's not the case. And so yeah, starting to think about this, about how to differentiate these sorts of things, I think was where I first came into this idea of, um, you know, applying philosophy to these animal welfare type questions in a way that has different than had been done before. So there'd been, you know, quite a lot of philosophy done regarding animal welfare from an ethics point of view, you know, what's good or bad. But in terms of the empirical science of animal welfare, investigated philosophically, that was something that hadn't really been done. There was this entire science that people were doing of animal welfare. And it didn't seem like anyone was really kind of philosophically investigating, you know, what this science was, uh, what kinds of assumptions and concepts it was using, what kinds of methods it was using and how they were justified, all these sorts of questions. And so that was what I ended up, yeah, basing my PhD thesis on was trying to, you know, at least get a start on how we might look at some of those questions.
0: When you enrolled in that PhD. Did you have, like, a particular goal in mind of where you thought, you know, doing philosophy will take you in a certain number of years, what kind of you know, big question you want to answer or, you know, maybe any positive impact in the world that your kind of theoretical work can bring? Like, did you have any specific goal in mind and, and thoughts, like, long term?
1: I mean, I'm not sure if there was a specific one beyond just making some progress on the questions. So I think, you know, yeah, what really interested me was, you know, taking this philosophical point of view and perhaps you know getting people to think about this science so firstly was to get philosophers to think about animal welfare science because like I said it seemed to be something people weren't and I was very surprised you know that animal ethicists for the most part weren't really looking at welfare science very much and in some parts sort of opposed to it and that yeah for philosophers of science and philosophers of biology that this was this kind of applied corner of science that was not getting very much attention as well so I think yeah one of the goals was just to try and bring the attention into that. Um, I was also just interested in bringing it back. So I think for me originally, I was thinking about bringing it back to sort of a zoo environment. So staying in that kind of welfare officer kind of position, but using the, the concepts and the ideas I I'd brought up about how to assess welfare and how to think about welfare, bringing those back into the zoo environment as well. But I think the more that I did it, the more I enjoyed just the academic process itself, just writing papers and reading things and really thinking about it talking with other very smart people about all these ideas and so yeah, more and more I decided I wanted to stay on that track and do maybe more of the big picture high level stuff rather than the application of it within the zoo setting which is where I originally thought.
0: So yeah your PhD thesis was titled if I'm correct um, if I could talk to the animals measuring subjective animal welfare could you just say a little bit more about what that research involved?
1: Yeah so essentially it was me trying to introduce and address some of the big issues I thought that arose in questions of measurement of welfare and I mean very specifically subjective animal welfare as it says in the title because one of the first things I realized was when you're talking about animal welfare you need to define what you mean by it you know what concept of animal welfare is in play there and the concept I prefer which I think has already come out what I've talked about today is this idea of welfare as animal feelings so it's this very subjective view some people might think of animal welfare more in a biological functioning approach there's a physical health and fitness and some people take this more sort of natural behavior approach some people like the preferences of animals but for me it always seemed like their feelings was very much what the center of this should be and what was important and so and i think that raises very specific questions in terms of the science of these subjective mental states of animals because Our sciences of animal feelings or of animal consciousness are still very, very new. And I mean, shaky foundations makes it sound a lot more sketchy than it is. I mean that, you know, we still got a lot of work to do to figure out what it is we're doing here because, you know, mental states are private. They are happening inside. And so trying to verify, you know, what are the external measures we can take of these things in order to get a good idea of what's happening inside the minds of animals, something that for a long time was completely off the table as non-scientific, think now it's being brought back on board but there's still a lot of questions about it and so in my thesis I was trying to defend this idea of thinking of welfare as this subjective mental states and feelings of animals and then looking at some of these questions so you know is welfare a measurable entity how do we validate the indicators of welfare when we can't cross match them against some other you know gold standard because we don't have direct access through any of our indicators everything we've got is indirect and so you know where do we start this process of validation? Also, the question of how we compare welfare across species, which is something that I'm still thinking about now, and about how we integrate different types of mental experiences into a single welfare experience. So, you know, when you're thinking about animal feelings, you've got, you know, hungers and pains, you've got joys, you've got curiosity, all kinds of very, very different experiences. And so thinking about whether these can sort of be integrated into welfare as any meaningful single construct.
0: So, yeah, one thing I wanted to um, bring up was, which I found really cool, actually, was that you worked on, or maybe you're still working on the Foundations of Animal Sentience project, which I read online. Um, I I remember seeing it on the news a few months ago, actually, as well, um, because it resulted in the scope of the UK's animal welfare boom. They were being extended to include octopuses, crabs, lobsters. So yeah, can you say a little bit about what this project involved and kind of explain a bit more detailed what these bill bill changes actually meant for uh, for these these animals?
1: Yeah, so I was extremely fortunate just as I was finishing up my PhD for this Foundations of Animal Sentience project to be starting up and advertising for postdoctoral researchers. And yeah, I got one of these positions that was absolutely perfect for me because the research line that I'm working on is animal sentience and welfare, which is essentially just my entire research interest. So what it gave me the opportunity to do was just do the research that I really love, you know, professionally for several years within this project. And. So the Foundations of Animal Sentience project is a grant that was received by Dr. Jonathan Birch from the European Research Council. And the idea is to start making some progress on the fundamental questions regarding animal sentience. And this is taking both a philosophical and a scientific approach. So, you know, the idea is to have this really interdisciplinary exploration of animal sentience and the science of animal sentience. And so as well as myself, there's another postdoc on the project as well, Dr. Andrew Crump, who is a scientist. And he's doing the more empirical and practical side of the project, where he's actually looking at how to develop some of the measures of sentience uh, in bees, and testing some of those, looking at how they would work. And so, yeah, we're thinking a lot about how do you measure animal sentience? You know, How do we think about animal sentience? How do we measure it? How can we detect which animals have it and what sort of features it has in them? And then also, like you said, there's this sort of ethics and policy side as well. So we're also interested in, you know, how does sentience relate to welfare? How the sentience relate to how we should treat animals ethically and how we should design policy around them, and so um, we also were part of the team who created this report. So for DEFRA, which was looking at the sentience of cephalopod mollusks and decapod crustaceans, so they put out a call um, to look for a team to put together this report, and we were taken on as the team to do that, and it involved us essentially surveying many hundred scientific papers about these different taxa to try and get a sense of what the evidence for their sentience actually was. And we compiled a very large report on this and that went back to the government for their consideration for the animal sentience bill. And um, quite fortunately, I guess, and maybe surprisingly, but very happily so, they took our recommendations on board. So we'd written this report. We found that we developed a list of indicators for sentience or for pain experience, particularly was the thing we were focusing on there. And yeah, you know, we found that the evidence was overwhelmingly in favour of these groups having this kind of sentience. And where the evidence was perhaps not in favour was merely because the research hadn't been done. So there's a big lack of research in a lot of areas, especially on a lot of these species. But all the research that had been done was more positive than negative. And so we thought that warranted their protections, and we recommended they become protected. And yeah, the Animal Sentience Bill was amended. So whereas previously it just was covering all vertebrates, it now covers the cephalopods and the decapods as well. So that meant, yeah, they were actually being recognized as as sentient in UK law, and that bill has now been passed, so it is actually going to be legislation that will involve setting up an animal sentience committee who will advise the government of the impact of different policy measures on sentient animals, which includes these two types of invertebrates as well. So... It was just i mean it was amazing i think as a philosopher particularly to do work that has real world public impact like that um it's just sort of phenomenal and yeah that the work we did really made this change and i think hopefully perhaps a global change i think people are really paying attention the amount the amount of coverage this got in the media by different news outlets all kinds of interviews and things people were really interested and almost everything i saw was positive um that you know almost everyone thought that this was really good and that this should perhaps be extended further in that you know hopefully more countries will start bringing in these same protections as well which obviously you know if we're right and the animals are sentient and they're capable of feeling pain it seems very very important that they are protected under animal welfare legislation so that you know their use is regulated such that they're not suffering unnecessarily that you know, animals things like um lobsters being put into boiling pots of water you know spending several minutes dying and what seems to be quite a lot of pain, things like that perhaps, will stop happening. And the idea that this is something that you know people in power are actually taking seriously is really, really positive. And it's really nice to know that the project we're working on here has been able to have that kind of impact.
0: Are you working on any other projects at the moment or do you have plans for any of us in the future that you, know, you hope will have this kind of real-world impact, um, is there anything similar to this?
1: Uh, I guess, I mean, nothing quite on that sort of scope. I guess you know one of the things that we will continue doing is just trying to investigate how far the sentience does extend. So you know, like I said, we are doing research here on bees. Um, so this idea in general, now that I think you know, cephalopod mollusks and decapod crustaceans have been shown reasonably to be candidates for sentience, that we will think next about insects, uh, probably spiders as well, gastropod mollusks, another one, and thinking about you know, these different kinds of animals and can we apply these same indicators and what's the current evidence for their sentience. And this, it's unlikely to have the same real world impact, I guess, as quickly, I think. I was actually surprised, I guess, that decapods got taken on board the way they did because there is still, I think, resistance to pushing out the line of sentience for people to think that there are animals so distant from ourselves that could have feelings that matter. But I think, yeah, hopefully that the work we do here continues to push those boundaries a bit and gets people thinking about all kinds of different animals that perhaps could be sentient as well, and just changing the way we think about how we treat them. Then,
0: when you think about the kind of importance of different relationships you've had in your life, and you kind of compare those you've had with animals and those you've had with humans, I mean, how do you weigh up the influence both of those have had on, on you personally?
1: Um, I don't know how to weigh that up. I mean, you know, I used to say a lot that I liked animals better than people in general. Um, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, there's certainly one of the things about animals perhaps is that it's easier to be more forgiving of them than you are of people. So um, you don't tend to think of animals as being bad actors in any kind of way that um, you do with people. So animals, yeah, I guess they're easier to enjoy their company and less frustrating in that sense. Um, Also, it was just always nice. They're quiet and they're easy to be around. And so, you know, in terms of changing my thinking, animals have had this great impact perhaps but you know some of the the people that i've worked with the people who are really passionate about what they do and the people who have given me opportunities to you know work with them or give me feedback on things also definitely shape this so you know, um, professor terry maple who um sort of i guess the, the father of zoo biology he's someone that i met and worked with for a while a few years back and you know that made me feel really passionate about this idea of like you know getting into zoo animal welfare and thinking about you know, the way one person can have such an impact on these sorts of things. And yeah, you know, Jonathan now running this project here for the Foundations of Animal Sentience. Again, you know, one person just you know, starting this team that has this huge impact down the line. And so that can be really inspiring as well.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Has, um, has thinking about animal consciousness, animal minds, animal welfare had much of an impact on how you think about your own well-being? Has it kind of affected you in... in I don't know, how you maybe like respond to emotions given that you, you think there's these other minds and you, know, you kind of experience things in different ways. Has that just had any impact at all? I, I mean,
1: I guess it's pushed me more to becoming a hedonist in general. And, you know, I mean that in a broad sense in just that, you know, thinking about my own well being as consisting in, you know, the feelings as well and thinking about the things that matter and the things that don't as being tracked by the things that feel good and the things that don't. And I think this kind of position can sometimes be given a little bit of a bad rap because people think it means that you just kind of indulge yourself all the time in, you know, these kind of sensory pleasures. But I think that really underestimates the degree to which other kinds of pleasures are very, very you know deeply held and they're you know, very, very rewarding for us. And so you know, when we think of humans as the kinds of evolved animals they are and how important our social relationships are to us, you know, how important certain kinds of um, work and achievement are, um, yeah, it really gets you thinking about how to balance out different rewards such that you can sort of give yourself a good life. But also, yeah, really thinking about the ways you spend your time and I guess, you know, the hedonic value of that, which, yeah, like I said, doesn't just have to be kind of sensory pleasures in a very simple sense. But there are a lot of things that, you know, are fairly unrewarding in any of those ways. And I guess, yeah, kind of decreases my desire to do those sorts of things.
0: I was going to ask earlier if, you know, the philosophical work you've done or probably more likely actually the the kind of more hands-on practical stuff at the zoo had influenced you in, you know, um, making you turn vegetarian or vegan. But I think you said earlier that maybe from a very young age, you'd always been either as a vegetarian or Yeah, so I was
1: vegetarian from when I was about 13 years old. And that, I mean, that came across, I guess, it was something that I'd been thinking about for a while, but I guess I didn't, I didn't really know how to formalize it. So, you know, when I was, I guess, 10 or 11 years old, I used to really struggle eating meat a lot of the time. I just found it sort of disgusting and I didn't really want to think about it. And so I found that, you know, I would have to be distracting myself as I ate it and I couldn't eat things that too much resembled anything, you know, like an animal. So steaks and things were much worse for me. And when I was in high school and we started doing a cooking class, one of the first lessons was that we had to cook, I you know, lamb stir fry or something. And I just didn't want to touch that raw meat. There was nothing to me. the seemed more disgusting. And so I told the teacher I was vegetarian so I wouldn't have to do it. And... It just sort of made sense to me as soon as i said it i was like, well yeah that, i should just do that and so i went home and told my mom and she was lovely about it and very supportive and sent me to live with my grandparents for a weekend who were also vegetarians and they taught me a bunch of recipes how to make you know lentil lasagnas and things like that and so yeah as my mother was quite concerned that i was feeding myself you know with decent nutrition and so yeah from then on I was a vegetarian. One of my sisters became vegetarian quite soon after that. And so we'd start cooking these separate little meals for ourselves off the side. And yeah, became vegan, I guess, more recently. Um, I think that's something that I'm still mostly vegan, but probably still eat cheese sometimes. But yeah, that's, um, yeah. the more I thought about that, the more it made sense to be vegan if you're a vegetarian. I think it's more consistent to do that, but I guess sometimes just practically difficult. But yeah, vegetarianism now is something I've done for a very long time. But something that the more I work with animals, the more it strengthens that, yeah, it feels like absolutely the right choice for me. I don't want to be complicit in any of the industries that are involved with creating animal suffering in that.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Heather. I think the the work you've done and you're doing is really, really amazing and really cool and really inspiring. So thanks a lot for speaking and best of luck with your future plans and research. Yeah,
1: thank you for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoy the Human Podcast, please consider subscribing.